It's Thursday, July 7th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a team of international researchers in 1972 used computer modeling to assess and warn us about the potential collapse of human civilization. 50 years later, how does their assessment add up, and have we heeded their warning? Plus, we've got space tourists. Now it's time for Astroletes, why sports might be the next big thing in space, and Spotify Pie. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. The Limits to Growth A seminal 1972 report from an international team of researchers that asserted, with the backing of then-state-of-the-art computer modeling, that the finite resources available on Earth cannot support the exponential pace of economic and population growth, and that if no changes were to be made, there will likely be a, quote, rather sudden and uncontrollable decline in both population and industrial capacity, end quote. It asserted that without significant changes made, humanity would reach its limits of growth by 2100, and in most of the simulations they ran, see the all-out collapse of human civilization by the mid-21st century. When it was published 50 years ago, it caused a bit of an uproar. A very skeptical uproar. Here's what the New York Times wrote when the book was first published in 1972. Quote, The limits to growth, in our view, is an empty and misleading work. Its imposing apparatus of computer technology and systems jargon conceals a kind of intellectual Rube Goldberg device, one which takes arbitrary assumptions, shakes them up, and comes out with arbitrary conclusions that have the ring of science. Limits pretends to a degree of certainty so exaggerated as to obscure the few modest and unoriginal insights that it genuinely contains. Less than pseudoscience and little more than polemical fiction, the limits to growth is best summarized not as a rediscovery of the laws of nature, but as a rediscovery of the oldest maxim of computer science, garbage in, garbage out, end quote. Wow, pretty harsh. What's interesting, though, is that a few paragraphs later, the Times summarizes the thrust of the limits to growth's simulated findings, writing as if some of these occurrences would be wholly unlikely. But looking at the world in 2022, we have a pretty different perspective. Quoting again, As a first approximation of the future, the authors assume that the world is utterly incapable of adjusting to problems of scarcity. Technology stagnates and pollution is ignored, even as it chokes millions to death. A shortage of raw materials prevents industry and agriculture from keeping up with population growth. World reserves of vital materials, silver, tungsten, mercury, etc., are exhausted within 40 years. Around 2020, the pinch becomes tight enough to cause a fall in per capita income. A few decades later, malnutrition and lagging health services abruptly reverse the climbing population trend. By the year 2100, the resource base has shrunk so badly that the world economy is unable to sustain even 19th century living standards. End quote. Okay, parts of that still sound a little extreme, depending on who you talk to, but the idea that leaders would sit idly by while pollution and the effects of the climate crisis kill millions? Not so hard to imagine. Already happening on a smaller scale. World reserves of vital minerals dwindling away? Also not hard to imagine, particularly now with smartphones in the mix and even green technologies that depend on things like cobalt, copper, and lithium. 
A fall in per capita income around 2020, I mean, not exactly happening and not in the way predicted here, but it is almost eerie to throw out the year 2020 as a specific marker of economic downturn. And perhaps because some of the predictions outlined in the book started seeming less and less ridiculous as the years went on, the limits to growth continued to be a bestseller and topic of discussion over the decades. It has sold over 30 million copies in 30 languages and published updates in 1992, 2004, 2012, and now again in 2022 with Limits and Beyond. 50 years on from the limits to growth, what did we learn and what's next? To promote that book and mark 50 years since the original simulations were published, Wired interviewed co-editor of the book Carlos Alvarez Perea about how the predictions from 1972 hold up half a century later and where we go from here. Alvarez Perea is the vice president of the Club of Rome, the international interdisciplinary group of intellectuals, or in modern parlance, thought leaders, responsible for publishing the first Limits to Growth book and its follow-ups. Today, their website describes themselves as a group who, quote, identifies holistic solutions to complex global issues and promotes policy initiatives and action to enable humanity to emerge from multiple planetary emergencies. The Club of Rome was created to address the multiple crises facing humanity and the planet, drawing on the unique collective know-how of our 100 members, notable scientists, economists, business leaders, and former politicians, we seek to define comprehensive solutions to the complex, interconnected challenges of our world." End quote. They were first founded in 1968, four years before publishing The Limits to Growth. And the first thing that Alvarez Perea points out to Wired is that the report was not meant to be a doomsday prophecy. The intention was showing that we have a choice. We can make changes and create the future that we want. Unfortunately, that got rather lost in translation. It is, after all, a lot easier to sit around and freak out about things than to actually do anything about it. There's also the fact that they didn't really say that limiting growth was a bad thing. As Alvarez Perea explains to Wired, it's all about balance and equitable distribution of resources. He told them, quote, Fundamentally, it is about equity, managing the resources in an equitable way, knowing in advance that they're limited, realizing that it's not higher and higher consumption which makes us live in a good way, have a healthy life and well-being. It's the quality of our relationships with other humans, with nature, that makes possible the scenarios in which you can decouple well-being and the growth of consumption. It's a matter, in my view, of considering that well-being comes with relationships, not necessarily a high degree of material consumption. It's a matter of considering that we can dramatically reduce the ecological footprint of the so-called rich countries. I know it sounds weird because we're so used to associating well-being with material consumption, saying this is like, oh, we're proposing going back to the Middle Ages. No, not at all. End quote. And that is a mindset that has not historically been popular in capitalistic, happy, exceptionalism-obsessed America, especially, as Alvarez Pereira points out, after Reagan famously emphasized there being no limits to growth. And we pay for that by having become accustomed to unsustainable lifestyles, with the average ecological footprints of Americans 20 to 40 times the average footprints of people in Africa, Alvarez Pereira points out. 
The main variables that were deployed in the original simulations, run on a punch card machine at MIT using the World 3 computer model based on the work of pioneering engineer Jay Forrester, were population, food production, industrialization, pollution, and consumption of non-renewable natural resources. The crux of the report was that those five factors could not keep expanding exponentially forever as they currently were. The collapse of civilization would not be caused by any one of them, but rather each working in concert with one another. And so many examples intersect with multiple factors. Alvarez Pirea gives the example of fossil fuels. Consumption of them is obviously a tick in the natural resources box, but it also leads to greater pollution. And the sooner humanity figured out how to work together and balance all of their resources, meeting the basic material needs of each person on the planet, the better chances we'd have for success as a civilization, the report asserted in 1972. But it's been 50 years. And we have largely done nothing, said Alvarez Perea, quote, What the system has done as a mechanism to continue with growth at all costs is actually to burn the future, and the future is the least renewable resource. There is no way that we can reuse the time we had when we started this conversation. And by building up a system which is more debt-driven, where we keep consumption going but by creating more and more debt, what we're actually doing is burning or stealing the time of people in the future, because their time will be devoted to repaying the debt." End quote. The hopeful news is that, as Alvarez Pirea sees it, the younger generations who have grown up with the reality that their elders left them with a raw deal have been igniting change in their communities. He says that if you look at what's being done by decision makers, the world leaders and the corporations, it definitely looks like we are headed in the wrong direction, that we have failed to heed any of the warnings of the limits to growth or any other warnings over the last several decades. But if you look, as he says, below the line, there's a lot of cultural change happening that really could make all the difference. For a movie called Space Jam, the 1996 Michael Jordan Looney Tunes flick spends almost no time in space. The big climactic basketball game is in the Looney Tune land Earthside. The only bit of space we get is when we see the alien monsters on their home turf. And if you've been living in disappointment for 26 years, feeling robbed of a epic basketball game in outer space, you may finally get your wish. According to the Wall Street Journal, space sports could be the next big thing. Lunar buggy derbies, outer space yacht races, basketball dodgeball hybrids using Velcro and magnets, and of course, plenty of sponsorships and live streaming to follow. Though the journal doesn't mention it, Axiom Space, the private company that sent the first commercially crewed mission to the ISS earlier this year, announced last year that they are working on a microgravity film TV sport and entertainment production and broadcast module, which will be part of Axiom Space's first-of-its-kind commercial space station. The plan is for the arena to be operational by the end of 2024. So while space sports may sound far off, there's already a venue being built and multiple organizations beginning to design space-friendly sports. John Spencer, the founder of the Space Tourism Society and the one who threw out the idea of lunar buggy derbies and outer space yacht races, told the Wall Street Journal, quote, 
The people investing in space right now are looking for the newest, coolest things to do. Sports are going to be a big part of space evolution. When you look at the sponsorship money that goes into the NFL or NBA, this is a no-brainer. End quote. People investing in space right now are looking for the newest, coolest things to do. He's right about that. And Allison Dollar, co-founder of the Space Tourism Conference, adds another strong point. Quote, People going into space are competitive thrill-seekers. The novelty of pondering Earth from the stars will at some point wear off. It's only natural that we evolve to have sports in space. End quote. I guess the old line that we should have sent a poet to space is out. Time to send a football player. And in fact, former Washington Commanders linebacker Ken Harvey already came up with a game, inspired by his time on a zero-gravity flight at Exploration Park. It's called Float Ball, and challenges teams to move balls of different colors to four goals at either end of the playing area. He says it's a combination of dodgeball, football, and basketball. Though the multiple balls and hoops bit, not to mention the flying, sounds more like Quidditch to me. But no one's asking me, because apparently no one wants nerds in space anymore. There are other games being developed, too. The Space Games Federation recently announced five winning submissions to a crowdsourced competition for games that can be played in space. One, called Spaceball, is similar to basketball. Players try to get a magnetic ball through a hoop with the same polarity as the ball. Another one, Inno, involves trampolines and Velcro-padded walls while players try to score via bouncing balls into goals. Now, as fun as trampolines and Velcro sound, Spaceball might have a better shot, because as gimmicks like Alan Shepard teeing off on the moon and astronauts attempting to play soccer on the ISS have demonstrated, basic sports rules are tough to execute physically in space, so a lot of creativity and a good amount of scientific know-how will need to be included in the design of any successful games. But that other game, Inno, still has some promise. You know, among the types of innovative sports leagues that the Space Games Federation has been looking to for tips are extreme trampoliners and the Underwater Torpedo League, who basically play football underwater in pools using hydrodynamic balls. Linda Reinstein, who founded the Space Games Federation, told the journal, quote, Right now, space is a billionaire boys club. I hope one day sports can democratize space, providing access for both astroletes and spectators. End quote. But until that day when more of us can become astroletes, there are VR companies like MXT Reality, who uses NASA data to virtually recreate features on Mars and allows users to do things like play soccer in low gravity on Mars' surface or rock climb a 70,000-foot peak on the Red Planet. That is probably the closest to space sports that most of us will ever get, but honestly, even that sounds pretty freaking cool and less obnoxious sounding than an outer space yacht race. If you've resigned yourself to using Spotify, despite perhaps disagreeing with their treatment of artists, and have also resigned yourself to throwing your data around willy-nilly, I have a fun new website for you, Spotify Pi. It is the latest hit in the genre of third-party data visualizations that we love to ooh and ah at, even as we get that creeping feeling at the back of our mind that it maybe isn't such a great thing that these corporations have so much information about us. 
Created by Darren Wong, Spotify Pie is pretty simple. You connect the site to your Spotify account, and then it displays your most listened to artists and genres for the last month. The artists are in a simple list, but the genres come out in a colorful pie chart. And part of the fun is seeing the sometimes hyper-specific names of the genres that Spotify generates. Even knowing that my tastes would elicit the more niche genres like chamber pop and anti-folk, I was still surprised to see others in my rotation like Michigan Indie, Brill Building Pop, and Melancholia. Michigan Indie and Melancholia are pretty self-explanatory. A number of playlists I've made this year I refer to as sad boy tracks, but Brill Building Pop I had to look up. It apparently refers to the Brill Building in Manhattan, where a lot of different songwriters wrote material for early 1960s girl groups and teen idols. It seems like my heavy listening to the Beach Boys in the last month was particularly responsible for this result. Spotify Pie is a fun site to check out for a few minutes and then perhaps share online so you can feel smug about your music tastes for a hot second before you are ruthlessly judged by your peers. And if that sounds like your idea of a good time, hit that link in the show notes. All right, well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 